Welcome to Mysteries, Myths, and More. I'm your narrator, Joyce Keller Walsh. My intention is to use this podcast to tell a story each month, sometimes fiction, sometimes not, that I hope you'll find interesting, engaging, and provocative. Jersey Girls. I'm going to tell you about a special time and place in my childhood. Why? First, because it was an age of innocence. That is, if you happen to be white in working-class America. While I don't apologize for having a happy childhood, I am acutely aware that my experience was not available to everyone equally back then, or even now. But it is a snapshot of life that some of you may find interesting, or not. Which leads me to the second reason for this podcast. It is in part a remembrance of my oldest friend, Joan, who shared the experience with me. We also shared a birthday month, this month, October. So, the time is summer in the early 1950s. The place is Cedarwood Park, a country shire in South Jersey, close to Tom's River, Barnegat Bay, and Point Pleasant. I say close to because it was about 15 miles away from the ocean. Point Pleasant had a small boardwalk, compared with Atlantic City or even Seaside Heights, and a lovely sandy beach. While we occasionally went to Seaside Heights, we only went to Atlantic City, about an hour and a half's drive, once a summer. Atlantic City wasn't yet honky-tonk. There were no Trump casinos. That wouldn't happen for another three decades. And people dressed up just to be seen. The Atlantic City boardwalk was a place to stroll, to sit on the benches and watch the waves curl onto the shore, watch the bathers run in and out of the water squealing and laughing and having a special treat. We never did go to swim there. And the day's treat was either saltwater taffy, not my favorite, or an ice cream cone, or, and this was my favorite, a Freilinger's almond macaroon. Many years later, my parents would sometimes send me a box of these cookies, and it would make me nostalgic for them and for those simpler times. Every Saturday morning, except in the dead of winter, we would travel in my father's 1948 Green Dodge from our home in Secaucus, where we lived on the first floor of my grandmother's house, to Cedarwood Park. It was about a two-hour drive on two-lane roads, before the existence of New Jersey Turnpike or Garden State Parkway. In the back seat, I'd watch as we passed through town after town until the business centers became farther and farther apart. Then the houses were fewer. Then sidewalks gave way to scrub pine and pine trees and fine white quartz sand layered over the dense black soil that's so characteristic of the Pine Barrens. Even today, when I smell pine, I go right back to that time and place. On our way to the bungalow, we'd stop at the ice house. The ice house was on a back road, and it looked like a two-story barn with a playground slide from the top floor to the bottom floor covered in sawdust. If you've ever watched the old movie East of Eden with James Dean, it looked just like that one. A huge block of ice would slide down to where a worker grabbed it with wide tongs. My father would wrap it in burlap and tie it to the front bumper of the car intended for the icebox, forerunner of the refrigerator. And that block of ice would last the entire weekend. We had no electricity, no running water in the bungalow in those early days. And, of course, no air conditioning there or anywhere, only fans. After we left the ice house and the tar road finally gave way to yellow stones crunching under the car tires, I knew we were almost there. Our bungalow was on the corner of a four-bungalow parcel. Next to us on the opposite corner were the Danzies with two younger children. Behind us was the year-round home of my Uncle Rob and Aunt Will. 
Uncle Rob was actually my father's uncle, his mother's brother. I adored him. In his younger days, he rode the rails, meaning he lived a hobo life from boxcar to boxcar. He had a gold eye tooth that flashed in his ready smile, and he brought souvenirs to me from the docks where he worked. He once gave me a small shark's jaw with a double row of teeth and a desiccated seahorse. I painted the seahorse with silver nail polish and put an aqua blue rhinestone in its empty eye socket. Then I glued a pin on the back so I could wear it. I didn't know any better. I was only eight, but I still have it. He also brought fresh fish to my mother, but he and my Aunt Will never came to dinner, nor did we go to their house. I didn't think much of it at the time, but later in life I realized why. Uncle Rob and Aunt Will weren't married. While they'd probably been together for decades, they were, as far as my mother was concerned, living in sin. I also didn't know that Aunt Will had been a classical concert pianist who'd performed at Carnegie Hall in New York City. I never saw her other than with a house dress on her bulky, bra-less body, a graying black hair pinned back in a bun, wearing slippers with cut-out holes for her bunions, and no teeth. Not exactly the glam picture of a loose woman. The fourth bungalow, catty corner to ours, belonged to my friend Joan's family. Our little bungalow had a wooden sign with pine rest stenciled in it over the front door to the screened porch that we rarely used. We had three rooms, a bedroom for my parents, a living room where I slept in a pull-out chair, and a kitchen with the ice box for mica table and chairs, a propane stove, and an empty sink. The pump was outside until years later when it was moved inside, sometime before we finally had running water. There was no bathroom. We used an outhouse except at night when I had a thunder jug under my chair bed. Despite the lack of amenities, it was my parents' getaway, a place of their own, no matter how small. Much later on, my father built a second bedroom, mine, and a bathroom, although we couldn't use it until the town ultimately put in water and sewer lines, along with electric lines. By that time, they'd paved over the Yellowstone roads, too. We would sometimes be at the bungalow on weekends in the chilly autumn and spring, even though there was no central heat. But I was used to that, because at home we had a coal stove that my father would have to stoke in the mornings. I wouldn't get out of bed until the house warmed up. In the bungalow, when I was very young, we used small, cigar-shaped kerosene heaters, one for each room. There were holes in the metal top that you could slide open or close to regulate the heat. Years later, my father installed a stationary kerosene heater in the living room but we still had to use the portable ones. I met Joan the summer I was 10. I don't recall when we started walking the four or five miles to the Matitaconk River every day to swim, but it was with our fathers working back home because neither of our mothers were left with the car and neither of them knew how to drive anyway. This was an era when parents could send their children out to play in the morning and not expect them home until supper. There was no thought of kidnapping or anything untoward happening. That's what I meant by an age of innocence. Bad things might happen, but they weren't expected to. There were no cell phones and very few houses along our route. There were almost no cars on the road, and of the few that passed us, no one ever stopped to offer us a ride. We were often accompanied by Joan's much younger brother, whose job, as he saw it, was to tease us constantly. Sweet and funny. We fondly called him our appendage. Ten-plus years later, he would join the Marines, be sent to Vietnam, and die by stepping on a landmine within a week of arriving in country. 
It was tragic and horrible and affected Joan for the rest of her life. When I picture him, and I still can, I see a laughing, boyish face with happy, large brown eyes. Large brown eyes with black eyebrows also dominated Joan's face, even though she was a natural blonde. She looked like a cross between actress Carol Lindley and Sandra Dee. If you're not of my vintage, you'll have to Google them. Although I was fairly tall, she was about two inches taller than me, and although she was a year older, we were in the same grade in our respective schools as I was skipped ahead of grade. Joan's parents owned their own home several towns away from my grandmother's house, so we only saw each other during the summer until we were older. We were both avid readers, inveterate letter writers, and we both aspired to be novelists. Joan went to a parochial school which taught Shakespeare in the early grades. She was fond of saying things like, Joe and day stands tiptoe on the misty mountaintops, as we began our morning walks to the river. There were no mountaintops anywhere around us, but every day at the beach seemed definitely cheerful, so we adopted that as our cadence as we walked. Joe and day stands tiptoe on the misty mountaintops. It would take us more than half an hour to walk barefooted to the river, which was fine in the morning, but by later afternoon the tar streets were so hot we'd have to walk on our towels all the way home. And sometimes we stepped off the road into the woods to pick huckleberries when they were ripe. We never brought shoes because we never carried anything extra. Why not? I have no idea. We wore our bathing suits and bought a towel, and that was all. We never ate lunch. The Matitaconk is a tributary of Barnegat Bay, which is connected to the Atlantic Ocean. But because a portion of the river is fresh water, the place where we swam was brackish, neither completely salty nor completely fresh, but a unique combination of both. We spent the entire day in the water and very little time out of it. As a consequence, we both had days and nights of sun-blistered shoulders and noses. We would set our towels on the public side of the small beach, which was divided by a tall chain-link fence from the private side, where we weren't allowed. That side was for members of the clubhouse only. We didn't belong, so we were prohibited from using their bathrooms, their concession stand, or their raft in the middle of the river. Joan came up with the idea of calling ourselves outcasts of the outhouse, and that is how we referred to ourselves for the rest of our lives. While Joan had only one brother, and I had no siblings, we early on decided to become blood sisters. I, I think that may have been her idea, too. We pricked our forefingers with a needle and mixed our blood the way you're supposed to and declared that henceforth we were sisters. Like sisters, I suppose we had times when we drifted apart and then reconnected. But only once did we have a serious disagreement. Prior to our brothers enlisting in the Marines, we were on different sides of the Vietnam War. I was against it. She was for the U.S. intervention. It distanced us for a while until her brother died, and we came back together in grief. But back to Summers and Cedarwood. As we entered our teen years, we each had our first crushes at the beach. Our tastes were very different. Joan liked a boy, Jerry, whose last name I don't remember, who was a tall, preppy college freshman. We once secretly went to watch him play basketball at Seton Hall. On the other hand, I liked a boy who was more like a biker, whose full name I do remember but won't divulge. Nothing ever came of our first crushes, not even a date. And in fact, we married men who were nothing like our early predilections. Joan, as it happened, married a male version of her censorious, in my opinion, unloving, in my opinion, mother. 
Joan's mother wanted a daughter who was extroverted, perky, popular with the boys, a cheerleader in short skirts and skinny ankles, like their neighbor's daughter. Joan was none of those things. She was introverted, intellectual, and despite being attractive, unself-confident. No wonder, with a mother who told her daughter, in a Cinderella stepmother voice, that she looked like a sausage in her favorite blue-knit dress, which she never wore again. Joan's husband was quite a bit older than her, twice married before they met and married when they met. He took advantage of the pretty 16-year-old girl who never had a boyfriend before. Unwed and pregnant, she was sent away to a side-of-house-rules kind of place to have the baby boy that her mother made her give up. Joan told me it was a Catholic orphanage in Vermont, possibly St. Joseph's, which, if you look it up, became infamous for its harsh treatment of unmarried mothers and their children. It turned her bitterly away from the Catholic Church. To my knowledge, Joan never tried to find the son she wistfully referred to, at least to me, as Beaver, as in the old TV series Leave it to Beaver, about a boy who looked a little like her brother. A year or so afterwards, she married her husband, by then divorced from his previous wife, in a private ceremony, with only my mother and father and myself invited to a quiet after-party. I always wondered if it was Joan's father who made that marriage happen. The first time I was invited to their apartment, Joan cooked a delicious meal of steak and mushrooms, her first attempt at hosting. As we sat at the table, her husband came home from work, entered the kitchen, and without saying a word, ran his fingers along the top of the refrigerator to check for dust. Joan had dropped out of nursing school prior to her marriage. My parents sold the bungalow to pay for my college tuition, and I continued on with college and then grad school. We moved to different states. She had four children, whom she basically raised on her own even before her divorce. They are adults now with children of their own, which is why I'm not revealing Joan's surname or the names of her deceased husband and mother. With a parent who made her feel inadequate, a religious institution which deemed her sinful, and a husband who devalued her. It's a tribute to Joan's fortitude that she didn't give up. Although she didn't become the novelist she wanted to be, in truth, few of us fulfill our early life's aspirations. That can feel like a crushing failure. Yet we can't let failure, real or perceived, engulf us. One of the useful antidotes is to direct one's focus outward to the needs of others. Joan did that. She devoted herself both to her family and volunteerism. Despite her own psychic wounds, her great accomplishment was in raising wonderful children who loved her. When I moved to Boston, she finally moved to New York State, we decided that we could each drive halfway to meet. It was the same thing we did in our teen years, when we were old enough to take buses to meet in Journal Square, halfway between her home and mine. We chose the town of Holyoke in the western part of Massachusetts, and for some 20 years after, we would meet in mid-October to celebrate our mutual birthdays. Our conversations were different from our teen years, of course, but our connection was unbroken. While I'd always managed to coax her into laughing, we both understood that that core of deep sorrow was ever-present. We had to skip a year or two when she was unwell and I had knee surgery. In between our meetings, we continually talked on the phone. Ultimately, her children moved her to New Hampshire 
to be closer to them. The last time I saw Joan was there, in 2015. John drove up with me and then left us alone for several hours. By that time, Joan was on oxygen with congestive heart failure and emphysema, a consequence of 50-plus years of pack-a-day smoking. She'd had to give up cigarettes, salt, sugar, and driving, but refused to give up her drink of choice, black coffee. So over coffee, we talked with the intimate knowledge that life was spooling down for us. But while I still had projects to do, and most importantly, John at my side, I keenly felt a sense of resignation from her. Nonetheless, we reminisced about the carefree days of summer and about her brother tagging along. Among all her family and friends, I was the only one left who had known him. And we would chuckle at some of the things he said, including the time he told me my auburn hair was the color of a dirty penny, which sent me straight to the drugstore to get a coloring kit, which turned my hair pumpkin orange. We also talked about the fact that, among all our family and friends, she and I were the only ones who knew each other almost from the beginning, and how she still bore the slight scar on her forehead where I accidentally hit her head on the backswing of a golf club, and the time we rode our bicycles all the way to Point Pleasant and had to be driven home by a friend's parents, and the time we went to bed in our bathing suits so we could go night swimming, but I got caught, and she chickened out and on and on. At the end of the afternoon, as I left, she said, as she always did, Bye, old buddy. And I said the same back to her. I had tears in my eyes all the way home. We continued to talk on the phone at least once a week, and were scheduled to meet again the following October, when John and I would drive up to see her. But she died one month too early. I sometimes feel she didn't want to hold on for another birthday. Several months later, her children scattered her ashes in the Atlantic Ocean, as Joan wanted, and which she called mother. I couldn't be there. And while I couldn't help it, I will always regret it. Here is a portion of the obituary her children wrote. Joan was a caring mother and friend, an avid reader, antiquarian, writer, League of Women Voters member, enthusiastic patron of public libraries, and a lover of the ocean since her youth spent with her best friend, the Jersey Shore. After successfully raising four children, she volunteered her time in support of the public library, working at the Friends of the Library shop and at the hospital working at Treasures Boutique. She also volunteered at the Performing Arts Center, where she was able to enjoy a variety of world-class performances. Joan was a history buff and especially enjoyed visiting cemeteries of historic interest. Joan also was a host for a number of guiding eye dogs, which helped those in need. She loved spending time with a good book, friends, family, her Labradors, an occasional lobster roll, and an endless supply of black coffee. While our lives turned out differently, along with the bangs and bruises we all get through the years, when Joan and I were together, no matter where or when, we were still the children of Cedarwood Park, walking barefoot to the Matitaconk River. Just a couple of Jersey girls, kicking it. Thank you for listening. I'm taking a hiatus for a few months until sometime next year, 2021, in order to finish writing my final novel, the fourth book of the Fitzley County Chronicles, and work on a new history project, I hope. If you like this podcast, please download and subscribe. It's free, and you'll find it on your favorite directories such as Apple, 
Google, Stitcher, TuneIn, and more. To learn more about me and my books, go to JoyceWalsh.com. <laughs>